Amen. Amen. Woo. Okay, if you are an elementary age kiddo or below, you can head out this way to our Vine Kids, where you'll receive wonderful age-appropriate teaching. If you're in middle school, head out the back, and there's a group of rowdy middle schoolers doing their thing. Mike Mays, everybody. He's a great guy, by the way. You should just go have coffee with him. He'll be a better person for you. Buy him some tacos. Man loves a taco. So, hey, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, like Treb mentioned, we, uh, we aren't going to be going through the Palm Sunday text because we missed it by that much. But uh, you can go back and listen to that sermon. It was a great sermon. And uh, we are going to be looking into some of those things, but we're not going to preach over that text because it's not where we are in John. We are in uh, John chapter 12, verse 37 through the end of the chapter. And the context of this, like we looked at last week, the context is, is this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. Chapter 13 of John, 13 through 17, is going to be the events of the Last Supper. And uh, Jesus is uh, teaching and prayer, and then he goes to his arrest and and his trial and the crucifixion and resurrection and onwards and upwards. And that's going to end the book of John. But this is really, these are going to be the last things that he says in his public ministry. And in the context of this, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And then he has been anointed for his burial. And then he had this, this incredible triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. And we looked at last week, really, this reality that Jesus came and that his sole purpose is he wants to glorify the Father's name. Today we're going to look at some commentary that John has explaining some things about the Jews' unbelief and then this final cry of Jesus to the people that he loves so much to believe on him and be saved. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to, or turn it on or whatever, to John 12. Verse 37, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into it. Heavenly Father, I just, whew, gosh, I thank you that you made us to worship you. And that we, when we worship you, and in all the myriad ways that that can happen, that we are fully us when we do that. I, I thank you that we have the gift of song, gift of, of a language that we can speak to you and all of those things just cannot even begin to contain the praise we have for you. I thank you for this week. As Treb said, this week, this is, it is the hinge of history. It is everything changed. You came and you died and you rose from the dead. It shattered every expectation. Everything before it looked to it, everything after it looks back to it. And now we hold on to the reality of the cross and the resurrection. And we look forward to your coming again. And we come to you today just to praise you and to worship you. In your seat right now, would you just pray that the Lord would teach you what he wants to teach you today? Pray for the person next to you or behind you or in front of you and just pray that the Lord would teach them what he wants them to learn. Lord, we come to you with, in our space with crying babies and real people, brokenness, 
every single one of us here needs your full and complete redemption. And we come to you utterly in need. Please teach us. Please transform how we think about who you are. Be glorified, oh Father, by everything we say and do. In Christ's risen and exalted name we pray. Amen. So, John, chapter 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had done these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world, uh, to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say And how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. All right, I said last week that Jesus says hard things and he's just going to keep doing that. So um, there's really two sections here. There's this John explaining from 37 through 43. Is this uh, John really giving this explanation for what's the, the Jews' unbelief and their rejection of the Messiah in large part. Most of the Jews did not believe on Jesus. There were some of them who did, but most of them did not. Most of them rejected their Messiah. And there's John, he's, going to, he's explaining some of what's going on there. And then there is, from 44 on through the end of the chapter, there is Jesus' last, really his last words in John before uh, we have these events in chapter 13 and onward. So we're going to kind of attack it that way. Not, your, not that you really need to attack the Bible, but we're going to jump at it. We're going to study it, look at it that way. So, and uh, don't, I mean, it can take an attack. It's not, I mean, lots of people jump all over it all the time, and it, the Word of God seems to do just fine. But anyway, we're going to chunk it into two parts. So, in verse 37, it says, Even after Jesus had done all these things, some versions say so many things, or so many of these miraculous signs. So Jesus had done so many, or all these Miraculous signs. A miraculous sign was those are the things that Jesus did that pointed to his deity and they showed his authority over, over nature. And, and, and finally, with Lazarus, it showed his authority over death itself. That Jesus could tell a dead man, get up, and the dead man got up and walked out. Even after Jesus had done so many or all of these miraculous signs in their presence, it's not like these guys were seeing Jesus' miracles. Uh, surely there were people hearing from him uh, of them secondhand. But this is saying that Jesus had done these things in their presence. They had zero excuse. They believed in God. 
They see this man who says, I'm from God. These are the signs that verify who I am. And they still would not believe in him. The, the, the grammar there is really in a, uh, an imperfect tense. It means that it's this, they still would not be believing. It's this continual progressive con- disbelief. They just still kept on not believing in Jesus. All right, that's the problem. 38 says, this was, John says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes out of Isaiah 53. So, because it's Palm Sunday, I think it's appropriate to jump back into Isaiah 53. Because he's quoting from Isaiah 53.1 on page 656, by the way. But... Uh, Isaiah says this. So if you've never uh, read the book of Isaiah, or if, if you've, a lot of this is going to be familiar. But 53, he starts out, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Which is what John is quoting. And then he gives this prophecy. I'm actually just going to read through it real quick. So, because I want you to know that this week is when we celebrate when this actually happened. So this is Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus, writing about what would happen with the Messiah. He says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This is him describing Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There's probably not a better description of sin in the whole Bible. Each of us turning to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And Isaiah starts that chapter, Who has believed our message? I mean, Isaiah is writing about Jesus, and as you read through that and you think about what happened, it is so explicit in its detail. It's incredible. That is what happens this week. That is what happens on Holy Week, on Easter week. 
That is what we celebrate this week. On all the days that we call it Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and, and all the names that we've attached to things, that is what we celebrate. That Jesus took our sin on himself. That the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. He is ex very intentionally filled by the Spirit, Isaiah, writing about Jesus. And so John is explaining, listen, they would not believe. They didn't believe Isaiah when Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. And he's saying that this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, who in prophesying about the Messiah, they didn't listen and they wouldn't believe. And neither did so many of the Jews at Jesus' time. Then in verse 39, he says, for this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, and he, here he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6, where uh, if you remember, Isaiah gets, uh, he goes to, to the throne, uh, he sees the throne of God, and he says, uh, I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and God, God uh, burns away his iniquity with his hot coal, and then uh, God says, who will we send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God tells him, listen, I'm going to send you to a people who's not going to listen to what you say. And he's blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. And verse 41 says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, wrote about him, knew who he was writing about, and John is saying, the things that Isaiah said would be fulfilled are being fulfilled right now in Jesus. That is why John is writing this. He's not writing it to explain the issue, because when we read it, right, a, an issue pops out, and we're like, whoa, 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 hold on, time out. That does not seem fair. What? Blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, and that doesn't, understanding, turn, it wouldn't, you know, so that they couldn't turn and be healed? Well, that doesn't seem like it's very nice. That's not why John's writing it. So in the context of the passage, I'm just going to not explain it all, and we're going to move forward. No, I'm kidding. So I'm not going to explain it either, but probably not to all of your, uh, your happiness. However, the purpose for John writing that is to say, listen, Prophecy is being fulfilled in Jesus, and this is how. And then, of course, he moves on to verse 42. But it does open up a theological problem for us. Now, Paul addresses this issue in the book of Romans, in, in chapter 9, 10, and 11, which are some of the most difficult chapters of the Bible to understand. So, and it's the problem is really the, 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 the Jews' rejection of their Messiah and the temporary hardening of, the, of Israel's hearts until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in to, quote, Paul, I'm not going to explain all that today, all right? But for your homework to this week, if you are, if you're tweaked and you're like, I don't understand everything, go to Romans 9, 10, and 11. You might want to start at Romans 1 and just read on through. But uh, in one of the most theologically dense books in the entire Bible, about 20% of that is used to explain this mystery. So if you, if it hits your brain and you're like, ah, I don't get it, just join the club. So, um, However, what's going on is we look in verse 37. They would not believe him. They see Jesus, they see his miracles, they hear his words, and then they do not believe. In verse 39, it says, for this reason they could not believe. So before we go into a, a whole lot further, I, I want to set three little markers real quick. Okay, The first one is this. God can do what he wants, okay? The sooner we just accept that and walk in it, the, the happier we're going to be. Um, he is sovereign. 
What that means is that in order to be sovereign, it means that he has to be omniscient. He has to have all knowledge, right? In order to make sovereign will and choices over all of creation, he has to have all the knowledge that there ever, ever was. He can't be missing some data. He's not like, oh, God, I didn't know that when I created the world and planned everything out. Because if whatever knew the thing that God doesn't know, that thing would be God. He has to be omnipotent, meaning that he has all power. Because he has to have sufficient power to accomplish his will. If he did not, then whatever power he would need to borrow, whatever he borrowed that power from, that would be God. He is entirely sufficient in himself. And third, he is entirely free. He is not bound by anything. And the sovereignty is the express acting out of his freedom. In his omniscience and in his omnipotence and in his freedom, he is sovereign to do what he wants. Now, the reason that when we hear that, the reason that we're like, well, I don't like that, well, that's because we're sinful. And we don't like it when someone says, you can't do that. It started a long time ago, and as you read the Bible, it's full of people who don't like it when God does that. As you, if you read through Romans this week, 9, 10, and 11, he starts out the whole explanation of this process with, can the pot say to the potter, why did you make me? Can Job, after all of his questions, God comes to Job and says, excuse me, Job, where were you when I made everything? Tell me, where were you? Okay, God can do what he wants. The sooner we hold on to that, it's incredibly freeing when we trust him to be who he is. Second, God does not harden a heart that would otherwise be soft. That's not what we see in the Bible, okay? We don't ever see this uh, humble, penitent heart before God that God comes in and smashes. That's not what we see at all in the Bible. He always accepts the humble, penitent. A, a, a broken and contrite heart I will not despise. This is at the heart of who God is. God does not take people who seek him and turn them away. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus will even say later on as we see, he came to seek the lost. He's calling to these people to believe, but they would not believe. And God eventually turns them over and gives them what they want. You see it in Romans chapter 1. The world, as we see, they are just diving into their own carnality. And the Lord, uh, from a mental, from a theological, and at a, even at a physical level, turns people over to what they want and allows it to destroy them. And it's deeply painful for us to see, to experience, and for God to experience. People will be held responsible for their own belief. And it's not fun to preach, not fun to see. And if you just live on planet Earth for very long, you just see it. And it's desperately awful, the reality of what he is saying here. There is a time that these people were given to believe. But because they would not believe, God made it to where they could not believe. So if you, you don't have to turn with me, but I'm going to look at well, maybe we'll go back there later. Romans chapter 11 explains some of that. We'll get to that in a little bit. But that is what had happened. 
there was a, 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 temp, a, a partial hardening of the hearts of the Jews so that the gospel would go forth. Because let me ask you a question. Let's say all the Jews believe. What happens? Do they kill Jesus? I don't have answers to those questions, people. I can't what if myself into a corner and sit there and cry myself to sleep every night. I, all I've got to do is go with what I know. And that is that this is in here. There is a, uh, I spent a lot of time this week reading people way smarter than me who uh, have already asked these questions. That's a very good exercise, by the way, when you run into questions in the Bible and you talk about it and nobody knows. Uh, we're not the first people to ask these questions, by the way. And I read, as a guy named A.W. Tozer, wrote a lot of books. You should read them. And they, uh, he says this, all of God's acts are consistent with all of his attributes. No attribute contradicts any other, but all harmonize and blend into each other. All that God does agrees with all that God is, and being and doing are one in him. God, being who he is, cannot cease to be what he is, and being what he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. I think it might be demonstrated that almost every heresy that has afflicted the church throughout the years has arisen from believing about God things which are not true, or from overemphasizing certain true things so as to obscure other things equally true. To magnify any attribute to the exclusion of another is to head straight for one of the dismal swamps of theology. And yet we are all constantly tempted to do just that. For instance, the Bible teaches that God is love. Well, some have interpreted this in such a way as to virtually deny that he is just, which the Bible also teaches. Others press the biblical doctrine of God's goodness so far that it is made to contradict his holiness. Or they make his compassion cancel out his truth. Still others understand the sovereignty of God in a way that destroys or at least greatly diminishes his goodness and love. We can hold a correct view of truth only by daring to believe everything God has said about himself. Listen to this. It is a grave responsibility that a man takes upon himself when he seeks to edit out of God's self-revelation such features as he in his ignorance deems objectionable. Blindness in part must surely fall upon any of us pre presumptuous enough to attempt such a thing. And it is wholly uncalled for. We need not fear to let the truth stand as it is written. So when you read something in the Bible and you say, I don't understand that, that's okay. It happens to me all the time. And this is a difficult thing to grapple with, but grappling with it is good as long as it's grappled with in the context of, I love Jesus and I'm seeking to understand. Not allowing my ignorance and in my ignorance judging God's character. Don't go there. Verse 42 says this, Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. What drove that fear? Well, they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that is brutal, right? So uh, we'll get into that back in, uh, when we jump into some application in a minute. But you have these guys... And we'll see some of them later on in this book. They believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't confess him 
because they were afraid, because they loved this praise from men more than praise from God. It's very powerful praise from men. Now let's move into this uh, next section of 44. He says, it says, then Jesus cried out. So before this, this was John uh, writing and explaining some things. And it says, then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. And if you, assuming that we've, you've read the, the other 11 chapters of John, the Father sent the Son. When he looks at me, the person, this person sees the one who sent me. So looking at Jesus is like looking at the Father. I have come into the world as a light, a theme that goes all throughout the book of John, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Or other versions say, everyone who believes in me should not stay in darkness. I have come. Where? Into the world. How? As a light. Why? So that everyone who believes in me doesn't have to stay in the darkness, but comes into the light. As for the person who hears my words, but does not keep them, Jesus says, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Jesus came right there in the incarnation, not as the judge, but as the Savior. If you read through the end of the book, meaning Revelation, Jesus is coming back, and he's coming to judge. But he is not there to judge, but to save. Verse 48 says, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. Who is that? Well, it is the, that very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the great white throne judgment where all humanity is brought up and is judged by what they did. Terrifying. Terrifying, except for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there he breaks people into two camps there. Those who believed on him and those who did not. Believed to eternal life, those who did not to eternal condemnation. And what will judge those are the very words which I spoke. See, the gospel condemns the unbeliever. It is life to those who believe it. But the very words which he spoke will condemn on the last day for those who do not believe. For I did not speak on my own accord, says Jesus, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I love that. I wish, <laughs> I mean, doesn't God do the same with us? I mean, what to say and how to say it? it what the difference is Jesus' absolute utter dependence upon the Father. I don't want to always do what God says and how to, to say it how he wants me to say it. And Jesus always did. And then Jesus says, I know that his command leads where? To eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Whew, okay, boy, what do we do with all this? Um, first, Jesus has come to save. To save, to save, to save. Everybody needs salvation. Everybody in this room Everybody down the hallway, everybody out there on that street, everybody in the zip code, everybody on this big spinning ball that's flying through space needs to be saved. Every one. I don't care how good you think you are or how bad you think you are. If you think you're the worst human that's ever walked on planet Earth, well, you know what? I, you're just walking right next to me because we're all fallen. 
The Bible says all have fallen short of God's glory. Compared to a glorious and perfect God, we're all just totally screwed. That's not, I don't know if that's theological language or not, but it's true. We have no hope whatsoever. None whatsoever. But what does Jesus say? I have come into the world as a light. When is a light really, really handy? When it's dark. He came into a dark world, and the darkness rejected Jesus. But the light is the salvation. I have come into the world as a light so that everyone who believes in me should not stay in darkness. If you have never believed on Jesus, you are still in darkness. What darkness? The darkness caused by our own sin. Sin always causes darkness. Always, always, always. When you see darkness anywhere, and I don't mean that it's getting dark at night. You know what I mean. When you see evil in your own heart, anywhere else, that is sin doing what it does. And Jesus comes to dispel that darkness and replace it with light, life, goodness, and an eternal life. However, you must believe on him to be saved. You can't just feel good about it. You can't just come in here and go to church. That doesn't save anybody. You can't just agree with me or disagree with me. I don't care if you agree with me. I want you to agree with Jesus. He says, the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge him. But there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. Jesus' words are eternal life, and they are your salvation, and they are my salvation, and they are your salvation today. Because there is a time, if you continue to reject Jesus, that you will no longer be able to believe in him. Listen to me now. There is not an eternity for you to wait to believe. Believe today and be saved. If you do not know Jesus, today is the day of your salvation. Do you understand me? I'm not messing around. It is not just a book that I read. You are a human and God created you, and he loves you more than you have any capacity to be loved. And he died for you to save you from your sin, but you must believe on him to be saved. If you have never done that, do it today and be saved. You don't know what that means? You just talk to God. And you say, God, I don't have all the questions, I don't have all the answers, I don't have anything, but I know this crazy guy is yelling at me and I feel like I need to do something. And I feel like I need to turn to you and do something. And all he says is turn to you. And the, uh, Romans says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess that you need God. Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead to pay for your sins and you will be saved. The idea is that you turn from your sinful ways and you turn to Jesus and ask him to save you and he will do it. The second thing is, it's okay to believe something that you don't fully understand. I don't fully understand the gospel, I'll be real honest. Coming from a preacher, you may think that's weird. It's bigger than I am, but man, do I believe it. You don't have to fully understand everything to believe it all. In that same book, Tozer writes this. He says, if all this appears self-contradictory, he's talking about um, the faithfulness of God, amen, be it so. 
The various elements of truth stand in perpetual antithesis, sometimes requiring us to believe apparent opposites while we wait for the moment when we shall know as we are known. Then, truth, which now appears to be in conflict with itself, will arise in shining unity, and it will be seen that the conflict has not been in the truth, but in our own sin-damaged minds. Holding on to the paradox in the Christian life is just, it's like walking on two feet, man. It is just, there are things that I don't get. But you're not called to understand it all. You're called to believe what God's revealed to you. That's it. In um, Romans 11, Paul, after explaining this whole concept of the Jews rejecting their Messiah, in 11.25 he says, this is just to give a, a <laughs> um, kind of to wet your, your palate for, for what he'll go do there. But he says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. Paul says it's a mystery. So that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? Not entirely sure. Keep reading. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. What does that mean? Just keep reading, people. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, the Jews, are enemies to the Gentiles on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God are now, uh, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. What? Keep reading. What does Paul say after that? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Have you ever given to God that God should repay? Who has ever given a God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that is where you should end up. Instead of the quagmire of, of some confusing theology, worship God. That is where Paul ends up. And he was a way better theologian than any of us. He knew that that is so hard to understand, I'm just going to worship God. Not to escape the process of thinking about it, but because he accepted his incapacity to understand an infinite God and instead chose to worship him. So it is okay to believe something that you do not fully understand. Finally, I have a question. What is the, the basis for all of your decisions in life? Small question, right? Um, because that's what get, happens here in 42 through 43, back in John chapter 12. Many of them believed, right? But because of the Pharisees, it's like the opposite of all those but God phrases in the Bible. But because of the Pharisees, they believed but would not confess their faith. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Their entire cultural, religious, social, political identity was tied up in that. And if they confess Jesus, they lose all of that. All of it. 
I mean, you have a, that happens today all the time. With Muslim brothers and sisters who come to the Lord, man, their families don't hug them and bake a cake. They will give them a death sentence. They were facing utter social, political, familial rejection. It wasn't just that they were afraid. They were afraid of something that could really happen. A genuine, legitimate fear. Then verse 43 says, For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Could you imagine if, if all of us lived all of our days only for the praise of God and not for the praise of men? The praise of man is so powerful. Look at the idols of our culture. Hollywood and D.C. I mean, really? They're the best we can do? I need a God who's bigger than all of that. Don't you? I need to know that humans are capable of actually loving one another. That's what I need to see. And I need a God who's powerful enough to blow through all of my darkness with his unbelievable light and shine the light of the gospel in a broken, darkened world. That's what I need to see. But I so often fear the consequences of living that way because I love praise from men. I love when people say, well done, good job, that was great. There's a whole... If you could make a list of things that make people feel good, very few of them would probably be praised from God. So my question to you is, how do you live your life? I do not want to be a part of a church that lives for the praise of men. I'm not even sure that's a church anymore. I want to be a church that lives for the praise of God and God alone. Will they have fear? Yes. The same guy that wrote John wrote 1 John, and he said, perfect love casts out fear, for there is no fear in love. You see, if the basis of my decisions is God's love for me and my responding reciprocal love for him, I don't have to be afraid. Jesus is going to die. Not like fake die. Really die. The pain of death, he will bear it all in addition to separation from his father, which I cannot even comprehend, and the utter pain of the only truly righteous man to ever walk this planet, bearing the sins of everybody. But he did it because he loved praise from God more than praise from men. I hope that that encourages you to live boldly. I don't mean without thinking. You're supposed to live wisely. But I want, what I want you to do right now, I want everybody just to close your eyes. And I just want you, to, I want you to think about one person, close your eyes and think of one person who you know that does not believe in Jesus. I want you to look at their face. What color is their hair? You see their eyes? What color are their eyes? You see them smiling? Are they laughing? Can you see their face? Put them in a situation last time you saw them. Maybe it was at dinner, went to a movie, you played golf with them. I don't know. What is that person's name? Say it in your mind. Say that person's name. Now, keep your eyes closed. I want you to imagine just out of the blue, calling that person up, walking over to their house, 
and saying, I know this is crazy and you're probably going to think that I'm crazy, but I, I, Jesus loves you and you need to believe in him. Now open your eyes again. Do you feel any fear? I sure do. Something about a guy that I've known for over 30 years didn't know Jesus. And my fear is that he won't want to be my friend anymore, which would hurt me in my soul. They were afraid to confess their faith. Don't be afraid to do that. Confess it. Confess it. Live for the praise of God and not for the praise of men. I would love to be a church that lived like that. We would make all kinds of people mad. But I'm kind of okay with that because I, I want God to praise this little group of people here. Isn't that amazing? That, that you can love praise from God, that God would praise us. Isn't that wonderful? This is Easter week. This is Palm Sunday. Celebrate Jesus this week. I mean, you can go crazy for all I care. And I don't mean like with chocolate. I mean, chocolate's great. I love chocolate. But do something that you would normally be afraid to do. Do something that would bring God to praise you and not another person to praise you. I mean, if you do that, I'll, I'll praise you. But my praise doesn't really count. Celebrate Jesus this week by living like he lived. Not for fear of man, but for the praise of his heavenly Father. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. I love you. We just don't deserve that you died for us and bore all of our sin and our shame. But that is exactly what you did. Oh, you are so good. You walked in total dependence upon your Father. You took all of that suffering so that we could have this abundant life. Lord Jesus, I pray for any person in here who has never trusted in you to be saved. Jesus, break into their darkness with your light and save them. Give them the courage that they need to turn to you and be saved. And help us walk with them after that process. We come to you as your children. We are beloved by you. May your perfect love cast out all of our fear that even in not understanding, even with all of our questions and our doubts and all of our fear, that we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel by which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's all stand.